Hello and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomerinke, and we're here today in the studio with staff writer Ragnar Thomas, and we're going to be taking a look at his recent piece, Pooling Together, a deep dive into Iceland's swimming pool culture. The ideal Icelandic hot tub, which takes the shape of a circle, finds its prototype in Reykholt, West Iceland. It's there on the historical property of writer, historian, and chieftain Snorri Sturluson that a wooden doorway leading from an underground passageway baked into the side of a green hillock opens up onto a short stone walkway. This walkway leads to a ring of more stone in the middle of which sits a pool fed by a hot spring and dug into the ground so that it's level with the earth. While the current iteration of the pool is based on a contemporary mason's guesswork, historical records show that Snorri Sturluson bathed in a pool of this kind and, perhaps, looking out onto the vault of heaven, philosophized on the origins of life. Quote, And the spirit of Fimbultir moved upon the face of the deep, Snorri wrote in the Prose Etta, the world's most complete source for Norse mythology, until the ice-cold rivers came in contact with the dazzling flames from Muspelheim, and Fimbultir said, Let the melted drops of vapor quicken into life. Indeed, there is a special kind of vitality born at the intersection of heat and cold, a quickening of the soul that is familiar to all those who have descended into the warm waters of an Icelandic hot tub on a cold winter's day. This feeling of vitality, of rejuvenation, forms a not insignificant part of the appeal of Icelandic pools. For the tubs, at least to any mind unnaturally preoccupied with historical throughlines, always seem to harken back to Snorri's pool in Reykholt, and not without reason. The first public pool in Iceland to feature a hot tub was Vesturbeierlög in West Reykjavik, which opened in 1961. The outside area was conceived of by architect Gisli Haltorsson, who drew upon the design of Snorralög for the pool's two hot tubs. Their dimensions are precisely equivalent to Snorralög, and tubs of this kind were originally referred to as Snorralögar, or Snorre pools. Filmmaker Jón Karl Helgason, who recently released the excellent documentary Sundlöga Sjöur, Swimming Pool Stories, grew up going to Vesterbæjarlög. He was six when the pool opened, and would accompany his father to the pool every day after school. This father-son routine persisted until Jón Karl graduated from high school. Things were different back then. Because there were so few changing rooms, you were only allowed to stay for an hour at a time, Jón Karl explains. You'd be handed a colored bracelet when you entered, and at regular intervals the pool guards would yell something like, Everyone with a yellow bracelet must get out now. My friends and I, however, were quick to game the system. We'd collected all the different colored bracelets so that we could stay as long as we'd like. As Junkart notes, the phases of many an Icelander's life are neatly mirrored in their evolving relationship with the pools. It begins at six or seven, he observes, during mandatory swimming lessons in elementary school. From there, the pools become a kind of playground, then they serve as convenient venues to bring boyfriends or girlfriends or to meet your friends, and then later in life, you bring your kids along. I add one overlooked phase of his narrative, the libertine twenties. 
When the pools were the perfect place to recover from a hangover, I say. Yonkart laughs. Yes, it's good. We're going to the pool the day after. The tagline of Yonkart's swimming pool stories reads as follows. The Russians have their vodka, the Finns have their saunas, and the Icelanders have their pools. But unlike those first two phenomena, Icelandic swimming pool culture is relatively young. It began in the early 20th century, when a national awakening to the inordinate number of drownings among fishermen was taking place. A newspaper article anticipating the founding of the Life-Saving Association of Iceland in 1928 noted that 1,754 Icelanders had drowned during the first quarter of the century, most at sea. The authors pointed out that other seafaring nations had long since established similar associations, the English in 1824, the Danes in 1852, the Norwegians in 1891, and the Swedes in 1907. We are lagging behind, the authors of the article noted. Besides the establishment of life-saving associations, swimming pools were also a way to prevent deaths at sea. Their construction began at around the turn of the 19th century, so the natives could learn to swim. Some initially opposed the initiative by the rationale that teaching fishermen to swim would only serve to, quote, prolong the agony of drowning. But as more and more pools were constructed around the country, usually around sources of geothermal heat, and as swimming lessons grew more common, deaths among fishermen grew less and less frequent. These days, drownings off the coast of Iceland are almost unheard of. Modern technology and improved weather forecasting has, of course, played a significant role in this regard, but it would be unwise to discount the effect of swimming instruction in Iceland. As the headmaster of the Maritime Safety and Survival Training Center in Iceland once noted, swimming instruction accounts for, quote, a total of 800 minutes per year in Icelandic primary school. It's ironic to think that more people currently drown in our swimming pools than at sea, I remark somewhat hesitantly to Jonkart, aware that as a child in Akureyri, he witnessed the drowning firsthand. I must have been five or six, Jonkart recounts. I wasn't actually in the pool myself. My mother had gone for a dip, and I, standing on the edge of the pool, fully clothed, noticed a young girl wearing a red bathing suit, lying motionless on the bottom of the pool. I called for help, and my father immediately dived in after her. He tried to resuscitate her, but to no avail. It was a distressful experience, which later engendered a sense of care when it came to my own kids. Jonkart began shooting swimming pool stories in 2013. Filming took much longer than expected. Free would often visit the pools where he intended to shoot three or four times in order to establish a connection with patrons. He visited nearly 100 pools. It was only then, when he'd become something of a patron himself, that he felt confident enough to bring along equipment to record audio, then a small camera, then a bigger one. Most of Jonkart's interviewees were over 80 years old. Eight of them have died since the film was released, because he wanted to focus on those individuals who had been visiting their local pools for decades. I wanted people who could tell stories, Jonkart remarks, people who had been swimming all their lives and who had become part of these pool communities. One of my interlocutors in the film, Hatskrimur from Thinkere, West Iceland, told me that whenever someone from his group 
didn't show up to the pool at the appointed hour, his companions would become concerned. I found that rather touching. Such pool communities have evolved all over Iceland, with people from all walks of life convening at their local pool at a fixed hour. Pohtormanir in Hapnafjörður, Morgunfrutnar in Dalvik, and perhaps most famous of all, Vinir Dora in Vesterbyerlug. Icelandic perception of swimming pools differ from what can be found in Western literature. Two things come to mind, I tell Junkart. The short story, The Swimmer by John Cheever, where the protagonist decides to swim home by way of the private pools at the homes of suburbanites, and The Great Gatsby, where the titular character meets his death in a swimming pool. In both cases, there are connotations of wealth, whereas in Iceland, the pools are equalizers. As the cliché goes, in the pools, everyone is equal. Yes, an admission to the pool is cheap, especially if you buy an annual subscription, Junkart points out. Perhaps the most notable example of this democratic intermingling in the public pools relates to Vigdís Fimbodotir, Iceland's fourth president and the first democratically elected female head of state in history. Even after she secured the presidency, Vigdís continued to frequent Vesturbæjarlög, where every morning, still to this day, a group of poolgoers engage in a tightly scripted regimen of exercises invented by Danish gymnastics educator J.P. Muller. Vigdís, as president, was not above participating. In March of this year, Lilia Tuk Alfredsdottir, Minister of Culture and Business Affairs, submitted a memorandum to the government concerning Iceland's nominations to UNESCO's List of Intangible Cultural Heritage. The ministry's two proposals were Icelandic Löwabröth, a Christmas season delicacy, and the country's swimming pool culture. Quote, Swimming pool culture has been intertwined with the Icelandic national soul for many centuries, Lilia wrote, and has rarely been as vigorous as it is now. Many matters of national interest are discussed in the country's pools, and it is a great honor for any intangible culture to be included in the UNESCO World Heritage List, and I believe that our swimming pool culture definitely belongs on that list. As noted by Lilia, the local pools are not only places of community, relaxation, and exercise, but also a venue for residents to engage in lively conversations about current affairs. In an article published in the New York Times in 2016, the writer Magnus Svet Helkason explained to reporter Dan Coys that because of the weather, the Icelanders, quote, didn't have proper plazas in the Italian or French style. Furthermore, because beer was banned in Iceland until 1989, the country didn't evolve a pub tradition in the manner of England or Ireland. The pool is Iceland's social space, Coys wrote, where families meet neighbors, where newcomers first receive welcome, and where rivals can't avoid one another. Later in the article, Coys spoke to mayor of Reykjavik, Daur Bia Ekerson, who observed, quote, It can be hard for reserved Icelanders, who don't typically talk to their neighbors in the store or in the street, to forge connections. In the hot tub, however, you must interact. There's nothing else to do. There's a family anecdote that sheds some light on just how engaging these tub talks can be. Some years back, my father went for an evening soak at the Schuderbeierlöge public pool in Hapnafjörður. Taking his place in one of the hot tubs, 
he became fully engrossed in what must have been a rather lively conversation with an acquaintance. At some point during the talk, a young man stood up from the hot tub and took his leave. My father's acquaintance asked, "'Say, wasn't that your son?' My father looked at him as if he was half mad. "'No, no, he doesn't look anything like that,' he replied. The following morning, my younger brother met my father in the kitchen and commented in a rather ironic fashion, "'Nice to see you at the pool yesterday.' I'm not sure who comes off as more eccentric in this story, my father for not having recognized his own son at the pool, or my brother for having recognized my father, but decided not to greet him. In Yonkart's documentary, one of his interlocutors remarks, If there wasn't a public pool in Thinkere, a town in the Westfords of Iceland, it wouldn't be habitable. As a regular patron of the public pools, I sympathize with that sentiment, recalling a time when I was hunting for an apartment. Among the variables that I took into account was the property's proximity to a public pool. If there was no pool within walking distance, then that strongly recommended against it. Luckily, it is rare, especially in the capital area, to encounter housing so far from a public pool so as to render walking unfeasible. As has often been observed, Living in a place that's within walking distance of a public pool is a kind of civil right in Iceland. I read somewhere that there are 127 concrete pools in Iceland, Jonkart tells me, and if you divide that by 380,000, the rough population of Iceland, that comes to approximately one pool per every 3,000 residents. I was also told that something like 80,000 admissions are tallied every month in the Lødalslög swimming pool in Reykjavik, and I once reviewed data indicating that 5 to 6 million admission tickets were sold to Iceland's pools every year. This may seem like a large number, but a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation may suggest otherwise. I visit a public pool, mostly the one in Hafnafjörður, four to five times a week, that amounts to over 200 visits a year. If a tenth of the population frequent the pools with the same regularity as I do, that would mean over 7 million admissions annually, not including the tourist. Whatever the exact figure, the public pools in Iceland continue to evolve. What began as dirty mud holes, dug for the purpose of swimming instruction, have gradually morphed into ubiquitous modern facilities, featuring concrete pools, hot tubs, kid-friendly areas, water slides, and most recently, perhaps, cold tubs, where patrons sit, shiver, and meditate, surrounded by a community of individuals who come for various reasons and with varying regularity, and who, in the event of a protracted stay abroad, usually come to miss the Icelandic pools. Without them, Iceland wouldn't be habitable. Well, uh, thanks for sharing the piece today, Ragnar. You're welcome. So, uh, actually, as we record, uh, we are in the midst of a pool crisis uh, with, I believe, what, 36, 37 some pools across the nation closed uh, because of uh, strikes in the public sector unions. How are you coping with a crisis? <laughs> well, I can say it's been a very difficult time, even though uh, only a single day has elapsed um, in which this strike has affected me. But I will say that yesterday afternoon, I strolled down to my local pool, um, where I try to go every day to go to the gym and then the pool, and um, the doors were closed. So I was forced to hop on a uh, scooter 
and I went to Auschwitzlerluch, which is another public pool pretty close to my house. And um, the gym was open, but the pool was closed and the locker rooms were closed. So uh, I sort of had a change in the corner of, of the gym. And then, uh, yeah, I left very sweaty and not very rejuvenated as a result of not being able to conclude my workout with a soak in the hot tub. Actually, uh, just out of curiosity, how many pools around Iceland uh, do you think that you've been to? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, like Jönkart said, um, the director of the rather excellent documentary Swimming Pool Stories, there's something like 120, 130 like, public pools in Iceland that are made from like concrete. Yep. Um, and I, I mean, I can say that I've made an effort to visit all of the public pools in the capital area. So I think I've been to most of them with my two two sons. We actually went to Waterworld, which is a, a big public pool in Keplavik the other day. Mm. So I think I've got pretty much most of the, the pools in the capital area covered. And then, um, I mean, we took a trip around Iceland once in a like this camper vehicle, and we, we made an effort to stop at every pool on the way there. So... And they actually had this website where you could, like, um, they have a list of all the pools and you could check the boxes to the ones that you had visited. And I was doing that the other day in preparation for this article. And I think the site sort of froze. But I, I'd say that I'd visited maybe like 40%, 30%. Yeah, I mean, it's not bad. Yeah. So, uh, and for the article as well, me and Kolle, our photographer, we went to the public pool in the Westman Islands. I hadn't been there before, mm. which was nice. Uh, and then we went to the pool in Kverakjerde, uh, the sort of better known one. There's there's another one that's also, I think, attached to the, uh, there's a kind of recovery facility there. Yeah, yeah. yeah but um, yeah, so the article was definitely a way for me to sort of <laughs> an excuse to visit more pools. <laughs> So uh, you were talking with the director of this recent documentary, um, Swimming Pool Stories. Um, I really enjoyed watching that documentary when I watched it maybe about a year ago um, because, you know, like it really just has this great look into these small little communities, uh, like these kind of swim clubs, uh, like out in rural Iceland. I mean, also in the capital as well. Um, but, you know, I mean, I just really loved like these images of, you know, like these groups of seniors who just meet, you know, m maybe once a week, maybe every day sometimes uh, in some places. Um, I remember uh, one kind of particularly funny image uh, where they were basically celebrating like Thoroblot <laughs> in the pool. And uh, there was this kind of, um, you know, like foam pool chair or something that they basically just had like a little buffet on yeah. and they're just kind of <laughs> passing it around and uh, just eating all of these um, yeah, fermented foods and stuff in the pool is probably, probably one of the most Icelandic things that I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that's actually my local pool, Sjöðubælöin and Hapnafyrir, where this group called Pottormanir, which is a kind of play on words. They've been meeting for many years, and we actually went to visit that pool for the article, me and Kolle, and um, it wasn't actually, we didn't actually meet, I believe, that particular group, but there's another group 
So like when we called up the pool to try to arrange a meeting with these people, they said, oh, yeah, I mean, it de just depends on when you come. I mean, we have, uh, I think, Potormaner meet at like 6.30 when the pool opens. We were there around, yeah, we came, we actually came, yeah, right when, the, when it opened. So yeah, we may have actually met some of them, but there are like three or four groups that meet over the course of the day. And it was quite hilarious. Like on the morning that we came, there were two other um, patrons uh, of the pool that were there, which are these two ducks. There's a, the, <laughs> the white duck and the, uh, what's the other one, the green duck, they refer to them, There's the white one and the green one. And they were like, one of them swam, <laughs> appeared to be swimming laps and, <laughs> and strolling around the area. And we came on a Wednesday, which is happened to coincide with what they call slide day. That's when like the senior citizens all go down the slide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so these are like pretty tight communities that have yeah, been meeting there for like decades sometimes. Yeah, I think uh, I also remember um, a kind of interesting book club in one of these uh, in, in in one of these scenes, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, it was like a Marxist book club <laughs> and pool club, <laughs> which I thought was a very interesting combination. Yeah, I mean, and and I mentioned Venus uh, Dora and Westerpailen, which is probably one of the more famous groups that Vitis Fimbo, those are the president used to belong to, and. I think they actually, like, they take trips together uh, in the spring or in the summer where they go to other public pools in other countries to perform these very strange exercises. So, yeah, <laughs> these are curious clubs. Um, so you were talking about uh, the history of swimming culture in Iceland, and this is, of course, kind of tied up with the fishing industry and just maritime culture in, 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 in Iceland more generally. Um you know, there is something a little bit darkly funny uh, about this thing that you say uh, that at first uh, swimming instruction was actually uh, kind of frowned upon because it might actually prolong the agony of drowning, <laughs> uh, which is a rather funny thought. Um, but I was actually wondering um, if you'd seen, I believe it's the 2012, uh, like, Baltazar Kormakur movie uh, in English. I believe it's just called The Deep. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah, it's a really good story. Um, it's about the, it, it's based on a true story uh, of this fisherman, I believe, Kvudlagur Fridthorsson, um, and his boat sank uh, in a storm, and he swam back to land. Uh, and it was, I mean, something like six hours in just the freezing North Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary um, that story and. Um, I mean, it was a very tragic and painful event for Gullur, who is referred to as Sundlur, meaning swimming pool, yeah. um, because, I mean, the water was freezing and all of his mates drowned within, I think, five or ten minutes or, or just froze to death. Um, but he survived and swam back to shore. And it's been likened to this sort of almost like legendary mythical feat um like something out of the icelandic sagas and there's actually um for one of my stories not too long ago i read the original interview with gulur that uh this guy called arni Jonsson wrote for i believe it was morgenbladeth um and i think it was in the 80s and that account that he gives is 
one of the more harrowing, but at the same time human and beautiful sort of accounts that I've ever read, just of him sitting sort of, they, they like the boat um, capsizes and he's sitting on sort of the upturned keel of the boat. And I think he hands the captain his boots um, and they all say the Lord's Prayer. And then basically they, they realize that their only hope is, is trying to swim back to shore and then, you know, it, it's basically every man for themselves at that point. Yeah. And then they set out and they sort of call back and forth to each other until all, all of the voices drown out. So good Lord is by himself. And, I mean, he was a very sort of corpulent, ob- obese man. Um, and later, I think, you know, the this, this story goes that he had something akin to almost like seal blubber, like the insulation of his, uh, it was sort of, yeah, I mean, I remember at least in the documentary, there was this whole thing at the end where basically, I mean, I forget if it was the British or the Americans, but I mean, basically, uh, they just had these kind of military scientists basically running tests on him yeah. to just, you know, you know, like, like, like people really didn't know, like, how did he survive for six hours in the North Atlantic? And I mean, it definitely had something to do uh, with, yeah, I mean, just his body fat. Um, but, you know, I mean, also just something about a circulation, just some sort of like genetic disposition. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, like they were really just kind of like putting him into this cold tank and just kind of like attaching all these electrodes to him. And yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like just reading his account when he's like, um, I mean, I, I guess he's doing almost like the backstroke to land and he's talking to the seabirds who are sort of flying overhead. And then he's just having these memories and recollections and one of the most poignant aspects of that whole thing was was him like he recalled that he that I think he had brought like a bike or something to some kind of shop to be fixed and the person who had taken the bike or the motorcycle or something had had fixed it but he hadn't settled his debt with a man yet and mm. he recalled feeling sort of very sorry that he was going to die without paying off the debt, which is like, I don't know, it's very salt of the earth. Sort of, I mean, who, th- who, th- who would, why would you think something like that at such a moment? Like, oh, I, I owe this probably very meager amount for something. But in, yeah, I mean, he was opposed to the making of Baltasar's film, I gather. He didn't want to, I mean, he hasn't wanted, hasn't wanted, wanted to do any interviews ever. I mean, he's done very few interviews. And I actually, there was, I think I recall a book being published by an American author about like swimming pool culture and water more generally. Mm. And the author heard of Gudelugur's story and, and sent him an email asking for him for an interview. And he, I think he initially declined, but then they sort of struck, struck up this relationship where they were writing back and forth. And eventually he invited the author to his home in the Westman Islands and and yeah, it was just very beautiful reading that account as well. Like, so yeah, that, I mean, that's uh, an extraordinary story. And at any rate, the swimming lessons do work sometimes, at least. Yeah, I, I mean, the uh, the deaths at sea, I mean, just petered out completely during the 20th century. I mean, a lot of that has to do with modern technology, life-saving associations, uh, improvements in weather forecasting. But just, I mean, I was talking to an aunt of mine yesterday, and, I mean, it actually came up, um, I don't know for what reason, but she was, I mean, we were talking about my 
my great grandfather, who was a fisherman, who was um, he was sailing out. He sailed out in a I think a rowboat with with his father when he was he was very young. So my great grandfather and my my uh, great great grandfather were on this rowing boat together. I think in Breda Fjordur, in one of the fjords, um, not far from Reykjavik. And there was a huge storm that struck. I mean, and all of the men in, in the town had gone out to fish. Mm. And the storm sort of blew in. And everyone, aside from my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather, decided to try to make it back to shore. But the two of them decided, hey, um, maybe it's better to, to sail away from shore and wait out the storm. And as a result, I think they were the only two people who survived. I mean, the oh, wow. so like the male population of this town was decimated, and this was not uncommon. Wow. And uh, yeah, so I think most a lot of families have stories like that. So yeah, it's remarkable to think that I think there's been, I think there was one death at sea maybe two or three years ago, but prior to that, there had been no drownings off the coast of Iceland for. Yeah, a, a pretty long time. Yeah. And when I interviewed the um, the head of the Maritime Safety Center, he, you know, that was like a, this point of pride. You know, they kept like, uh, I think my interviewing with him, my interviewing him coincided with that one death, and they took that very hard. But I think that was, um, I mean, someone just fell, um, fell off the, the the deck of the ship and, and drowned. But yeah, yeah so <coughs> a, a lot has changed. Well, and you liken Gvidlaugur to a saga hero, really. Yeah. Um, and that's something that's always really interesting to me is, you know, how, yeah, you know, hot tubs and swimming pools were also present, you know, way back, uh, going all the way back to the very beginnings of settlement. Uh, another very famous character who performed a great feat of swimming uh, was Grettir. Uh, from Greta Saga, and he actually has his own uh, little hot tub uh, to this day named after him in North Iceland, Yep, uh, which some people uh, still visit. It's, it's rather humble, actually. Uh, <laughs> it's just really just like a little hole in the ground, and it's actually not quite that hot, actually. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like so many of these things actually do have a really, really deep history. I mean, uh, like, for instance, uh, you kind of begin with this uh, meditation on Snorri's hot tub at Ray Colt, and I always just really like this idea of, yeah, you know, this great author and historian uh, just in his hot tub, just kind of looking out over the countryside. It's actually it's, it's actually quite cool um, for people who haven't uh, been to Ray Colt to visit it. Uh, you know, I mean, basically, like, the way that his house is built is such that there's this kind of uh, subterranean passage that like kind of goes down to the pool, which is at the base of a hill. And so, you know, I mean you really have to imagine like this was like the height of luxury in medieval Iceland that, you know, I mean, even in the winter you could basically just be in the house and be warm and just kind of step right out of the door directly into a hot tub. You know, I mean, it's really must've been quite something for him. Yeah. And I mean, like I mentioned in the piece that um, like the current iteration of the pool is based on like guesswork from sure. a, a rather contemporary Mason. But what I didn't know going into this piece and what I found uh, the most interesting was that um, because I was born in 1986 and I grew up in the pools and, you know, the, the prototypic ideal Icelandic hot tub is this sort of circular tub that's sort of level with the ground. And, you know, as a kid and growing up, you just imagine that these things have been around forever, but that um, 
But I learned that the first sort of iteration of these circular Icelandic hot tubs were in Vesterbeilich, where an architect who had actually drawn Snorrish pool as a part of, I guess, a, a master's project when he was studying in Denmark, um, when he was hired to design sort of the pool area in Vesterbeilich in, in early 1960, uh, the pool was opened in 61, he sort of based those original hot tubs on Snorris pool. Mm. And so their dimensions are exactly equivalent. And actually his idea, uh, I'm not sure that it made it into the piece, for these hot tubs was based on an observation that there was a pool in Lövatalur, in, in downtown Reykjavik, or in central Reykjavik, where he, he had noticed that there was a pool and there were these shower areas. And the shower, one of the showers, or both of them, had these sort of, there was this sort of platform that was uh, like a sh- very shallow tub. And he noticed that when people would shower, they would sometimes lay down on the floor in this very shallow pud, um, tub and, <laughs> and sort of relax. And he thought, oh, well, maybe that's, maybe we could make something like that in yeah. Vestabaila yeah. where you could. So, yeah, I find that completely fascinating that these tubs aren't older than, I mean, they go back 60 years and that's it. Yeah. The modern versions. Um, so uh, an interesting idea that I'd also like to just quickly return to um, is, yeah, this idea that your relationship to the pool kind of changes over time. And, you know, like we have different kind of relationships to the pool at different times of our life. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, of course, this is going to be a different place with a different meaning when you're a kid versus when you're a teenager, an adult, and you're older. Um, and, you know, I guess I just have a little funny anecdote. Um, and, you know, I mean, this was just maybe a week or two ago. And I, you know, I mean, of course, uh, the kids uh, love running around the pool. Uh, they like to swim, hang out with their friends and stuff. You know, like all of that makes sense to me, of course. Um, but I was just kind of sitting in the steam room and there was just this, you know, boy who must have been like seven or eight next to me and like like he just had his arms up kind of behind him and it looked like he was just relaxing after like a long day and and, and i really kind of wondered like like what's this kid getting out of the steam room because because like for me that's like a very kind of like adult experience like like, like it's kind of like how you only acquire a taste for coffee or mustard <laughs> late in life because like when you're a kid you know, like it's not really clear why adults like that. Yeah. And it's like, to me, the steam room, it's about like sweating out the stress, maybe after a workout, maybe after a hangover. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't really get like, like what's this kid doing in here? Like, like what's, what's this kid so stressed about? <laughs> well, it may, it may tie into like, you know, this um, like father, son, mother, daughter, you know, parent, sibling relationship that, you know, you, you bring your kids along and maybe you teach them some of your habits and maybe that's where it comes. I mean... Yeah, or this kind of like playful, kind of like mimicking dad. It could know. be that, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I had a moment with my elder son the other day where I go into the cold tub sometimes and, and I was telling him, and he was like, what, what, what are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I, I go and, you know, soak in this thing and it, it's, uh, you know, it's... It's uh, quite painful, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, you, you feel quite rejuvenated afterwards. And he was like, oh, okay. Then, then, you know, he dipped his toe in. He's like, oh. And then I was telling him, oh, no, you got to, you got to breathe deeply. You got to relax, you know, and you just, and um, I mean, kids are so funny. They pick up that kind of thing. So when, like, whenever we're in a 
like a situation where it's cold, he'll just be like, he'll start doing these Wim Hof breathing <laughs> things when he's like, he's four. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I just gotta breathe it out and uh, relax, and <laughs> which is uh, yeah, pretty hilarious. Well, uh, with this kind of piece, yeah, I feel like it always, uh, you know, these things always kind of have a way of taking you a lot of different places uh, when you're writing. Was there anything really interesting that didn't quite uh, make it into the piece? Um, no, I mean, I this piece, I, I had like, I uh, insinuated like tidbits and these other like pieces of stuff that I'd written for, for older pieces, and I, I kind of liked working on this because, yeah, it's been sort of a, a, a long-time fascination of mine. I think this is like almost the fourth article that I've written that somehow relates to the pools. So it was just nice sort of somehow aggregating all of the little things that I've learned and, and try to build mm -hmm. something bigger. I mean, I, I wish I would have had like more space. I mean, we initially, Greta, the editor, I discussed, you know, talking to a philosopher, or, you know, getting like these varied perspectives on, you know, what exactly, you know, w what are, what is, what does this culture mean? And I enjoyed reading through, I read through a couple of like uh, bachelor's and master's theses on the uh, university website where you had, you know, students of architecture, students of sociology, students of sort of sports science, you know, bringing to bear their perspective on, on the pools. And yeah, I, I like how multifaceted and how sort of everyone, you know, goes to the pool for their own very, you know, whether it's a Marxist book club or, <laughs> you know, you're just trying to sweat it out in the steam room after a long day or you go there to swim or it's more of a community thing. Uh, yeah, they are these sort of ciphers. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I just sort of enjoyed taking the the long view and the and the broad view of of the culture. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks so much for talking today, Rocknar. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.